Okay. Well, we've been looking at a series looking at the idea, um, which will come up on the... Here it is. Da-da-da-da. Incoming. Biblical meta-narrative and Christian worldview. What we've been doing is going through the story of Scripture. We're right near the beginning, obviously. And um, what we're doing is not so much just going through and talking about details of particular stories that you find in Scripture, but stopping and thinking uh, the worldview implications. That is, what does it mean to actually take Christian convictions as shaped by the story of Scripture and shape the way that we approach different parts of uh, our life and the world, not just our individual lives, but also our social lives, also the wider world of politics, society, culture, the arts, science, etc. And uh, last week we talked about uh, creation, and um, part of what we did there is uh, looked at a couple of things, one of which was actually seeing sometimes the um, as we shape a Christian worldview, where the way that we think about things might actually be different to an ancient Near Eastern worldview. So we just quickly looked at... Um, how Genesis chapter 1 presents the idea of creation, but that you don't have to adopt a pre-scientific worldview in order to understand what the Jewish and Christian worldview actually is about. That is, that God is the creator of a world that is, uh, doesn't come out of God's um, own nature, but is freely and gratuitously created. Who knows what creation could have been like? God decided to make it like thus. It doesn't come out of a kind of a... Um, an unfolding of reason, which is what the Greeks thought creation would be. It's an unfolding of logic. And instead, what the Christian and Jewish uh, worldview presented was that this universe, God has decided, hmm, I'm going to make it this way. So we need to go out into the world and find out what the world is that he's actually created. Um, what does it look like? It could have been like this, but instead it's like this. And that's actually part of the birth of modern science. So what the... Uh, if you want to know the name, it was uh, Herbert Butterfield, um, historian looking at the emergence of science, saw how important it was that the Christian worldview propelled people out of the armchair, propelled people out of the room of philosophy, out into the world to investigate and to look at how the world was actually made. So the world is created in God's freedom and it comes out of God's love. We looked as well that creation, as is presented in Genesis chapter 1, is good, meaning not that it's morally good, but that it's good in terms of it's fit for God's purpose. It is how God wants it moving toward his final goal. Creation is not perfect. It has not been perfected. We know that because we just read in that story there, in Genesis chapter 3, that actually um, there's a possibility for things to go wrong. When things are perfect, they don't go wrong. That doesn't mean it was... Um, bad, but it does mean that it had not reached its full purpose. And today we're looking at the idea of, um, of the disruption of God's purpose, which might sound um, contrary. Might think, well, God is all-powerful. Uh, God's will is above everything. Everything that happens is God's will, therefore, and nothing can go against his will. Kind of a, a great meticulous sovereignty where God orchestrates every event that happens. But the world does not follow fully what God's will is. And you remember, you can think to Jesus' own prayer. Our Father in heaven, honour be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning that it's something to pray for. It's not something which happens. It's not a surrender to, oh, well, here's the way the world is. It's God's will. I'll just surrender to it. It's a prayer that God's kingdom, 
come into the world and that his will would actually be done. So not everything that happens is God's will, okay? And we are called to follow God's will, to discern it and to embody it and live it out in the world, which ultimately is his kingdom of love. So we talk about God's creation, that fundamentally, undergirding everything, is God's act of grace and creation, and that where we talk about things going wrong, it does not fundamentally um, upend everything, but it is, we'll say, a disruption and a major one. So we've been talking about the idea that the story of the Bible is like a story in six acts, the creation, fall, story of Israel and the Messiah, which is redemption, the new creation where everything is brought together and um, everything is uh, brought to final fruition, the consummation that's sometimes called, and then there's us, which we'll get to at the very end of our six weeks going through this. So right now, Act 2, sometimes called the fall. Now that's actually not a word... um, from the Bible, but it is a traditional word in Western theology, um, the idea that there was some kind of perfection, Augustine is behind that view largely, and that human beings have fallen from that perfection. I'm not going to call it the fall, um, partly because that's not really a fully accurate rendering of what happens in, um, in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And 4, 5, 6, all the way through to 11. When we talk about the fall, or in this case, the disruption, we're talking about what does it mean for human beings to actually have been in some way pushed aside, turned aside willingly as well, found themselves in a situation where they continually and often want what is contrary to what God wants. That is basically what the Bible calls sin. We'll come back to the meaning of that. And it may seem a strange and antiquated thing, and, if, and uh, for visitors you might say, I haven't been to church for a while, and oh, of course, show up to church and they're talking about sin. Um, so um, it is part of a Christian worldview. How do we understand the world that we're in? It is not, as they say, the way, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Meaning, therefore, that it does have some purpose, but we're not seeing it fully or properly realised. And that purpose in creation is actually that we would do good, that we would do what is right, that we would have integrity, that uh, we would live basically in the light of God's love and express God's love. We would do good and we would do well. There would be, as the Bible calls it, shalom, that there would be harmony, that there would actually be a prospering of human life, a flourishing, as people talk about it now, human flourishing, a flourishing of human life. We would do what is right, we would do, we would do well, and a third dimension you might say is things would feel right. Okay? People might notionally do, what the good, uh, do what's right, do what's good. They might do very well um, materially, but they may not feel right within the world. There is something wrong deep inside where I don't feel properly and fully connected. In God's plan for his creatures, shalom, all of these things come together. 
We do what is right. We express love, express justice. We do well together. And there is a sense of feeling right, that we actually feel connected with each other. There is a sense of uh, community. There is a sense of loving and being loved. And when we think about the entry of sin into the world, um, this is where this becomes disrupted. Now, this is going to be all pretty negative. Um, I did have a Bible reading for Bruce, which I pulled at the end, which um, we might still look at, but it wasn't kind of encouraging going to the sermon, looking at um, the prophecies of Amos and the killing of pregnant women. Is that a reading of what going to the sermon? What that indicates, though, is that if you have a romantic view of human beings, if you have an idea that human beings are just terrific, um, one of the things the Bible witnesses to um, turning back on Israel, but initially talking about all the other nations, is their cruelty often in combat, their cruelty in taking other people's uh, land, and then the cruelty and the torture and the war crimes that are committed. Um, and, that. and that's not just something for ancient Israel, is it? Um, our grandfathers a generation ago were in a war where many of these things from good cultured um, Europeans uh, with supposedly Christian influences in there as well also committed terrible uh, crimes. There's something in human nature where we can say, I wouldn't do that, I wouldn't be like that, but maybe, just maybe, you might. Former Yugoslavia. What's happening in Ukraine at the moment? All that good, kind uh, human nature can at a... Um, yeah, a moment's notice be called upon to be the opposite. It's very dark. We're going to talk about this, but we're going to finish with where we're going next, which is what's the good news? What's God going to do about this? What has God done about this problem of sin? And, um, and then finally, what's our part to play within that? So that's all coming up, and I will finish the more positive uh, aspect of that. Okay, talking about sin, though, how do we think about it? How do we talk about it? It's a word where people just sort of think, oh, that means, you know, that's a sort of a downer, drink too much, sex with the wrong people at the wrong time. Uh, that sin sums it up. But it's more pervasive than that, as I said. It's about a disruptive power within the world. And when we read the story of, of Adam and Eve, however you understand it, don't be distracted by your thoughts about um, its relationship to history and things like that. What it tells us is that from the beginning, human beings have gone the wrong way. Now, as we said last time, think about our lives as being set in a framework of relationships. How do we relate to God, or Yahweh is called in the Old Testament? God with a kingdom of love overall. How do we relate to God? We're called to relate to God in worship, that is in service and giving our lives to God uh, sacrificially. Um, we're called to uh, live in community or, or just, as I said, their friendship with other human beings, expressing love for one another, being in community, caring for one another, living justly. Um, living peaceably with one another. And then lastly, we're supposed to live in a way where we reflect God's rule over the world in a loving dominion toward the earth. 
um, that we, we represent God in the way that we do that. But where we're going now, of course, is that we might say fallen relationships, that is relationships that are, do not meet up to what God has called us to be, where we fail in our vocation to be fully human in our actions, that's where it starts to go wrong. In Romans chapter 1, there's the idea that fundamentally human beings have become, the Gentile world, unthankful. We no longer recognise the good gifts that God gives us. We no longer recognise that the good things that we have in life ultimately have their source in God. We are not thankful. In our particular culture, we probably think of ourselves we're just self-made people. We don't think about the givenness of so much which is, um, in which we live. We tend to think that maybe we made it all up ourselves. My own success is all about me. When we think about human beings and think about the way we relate to another, do we actually relate to another well in terms of loving relationships to everybody, not just our small kinship group? Instead, is there an element where we talk about selfishness? I have to pick one word and you can say, well, that's, I'm not a selfish person. Well, maybe you're not. But then on the other hand, maybe you are. But there's a definition of uh, sin, which I think is an interesting one, um, which is the idea that sin causes us to curl and curve back on ourselves. It's not that we don't care about other people at all or that we have special people that we care for, but the tendency of sin is not to be fully open to God, not to be fully open to other people, but in a sense to curve back on ourselves and our own interests. Okay? Something within all of us if uh, yeah, we're not challenged in some form or another. So sometimes we talk about that in terms of that's a, a fallen relationship. But then our relationship to the earth or the land, in uh, the story there in Genesis, the judgment that comes upon human beings in terms of their um, sinfulness is that no one will be fully cared for by God and provided for, but they will have to work hard. Uh, their relationship to the land and agricultural society, agrarian society rather, is cursed. They will have to dig past the thorns and thistles and there'll be pests and bugs and things like that. It just won't be the same situation in which uh, they previously were and there's a sense in which they are cursed. So we'll just leave it up there for a moment. I'm just going to run through a few different uh, aspects of this. The first thing is that when we think about communicating this to each other and other people and to get ourselves out of habits of just thinking we understand things fully already. It's not a bad thing to actually think about what are different ways that I would describe this condition of sin. Like I said, in one respect, you say it's a disruption. It's going counter to God's purposes and not partnering with God as a servant of God to fulfil God's call upon our lives and to live out his mission in the world. It's a disruption. It's also a deviance from God's purposes. We actually start to go off in different directions. And in this disruption, in this deviance from God's purpose, there's also, you might say, a defilement of creation. It's one of the things that's very important in the Old Testament is that if God comes to live among us, he makes his home amongst us, um, we need to remain in a relationship which is pure or holy, and so sin is a defilement of that, where we do things, we cross boundaries that we shouldn't, we um, 
fail to actually meet um, both the commands and the vocation, the calling which were given. And it defiles God's creation, but it is not a destruction of it. It's not like the whole world now is just so covered in sin that actually, oh, there's nothing good about it. Okay? And sometimes Christians can be, have heard, both in the present and in history, to just imagine, oh, there's nothing good about the world at all, and the sooner we're out of here, the better. But as we've said all along, the purpose of God is to renew his creation, is to rescue it, save it, judge it, but to reshape it at the end toward his final purpose. We're not escapists. We're set in this world for a lifetime and will be resurrected, as the Christian claim, based on the resurrection of Jesus, to be brought back into a new creation. That is a renewed creation, which we'll talk about later. So sin does not destroy everything, but it does distort it. And so part of the Christian worldview is, I guess I'll just hammer this point a couple of times, is that all the things that we have in the world, the art, the science, uh, even our life involved in politics, the deliberations we make about power and the distribution of goods and so forth, are all part of God's creative work. They're all good things. They're good to be involved with. They're not a waste of your time. It's not like the Christian claim is we need to, like, Get saved, read the Bible, go out and tell more people about Jesus, die, go to heaven. That's not the biblical story, even if it is something that um, we may have heard or bought into. God is about redeeming his creation, and as we say in our tagline for the church, we're called to follow Jesus Christ, the Lord. We're called to share the good news of his death and resurrection and his ascension, and we are to care for God's world. These are all integrated aspects of what Christian life is about as we go through the biblical story, as we will see. Does being caught up in this issue of sin mean we are no longer, as I said last week, in the image, made in the image of God? Have we lost that? We remain the image of God. It's repeated a number of times in the story of Noah, and elsewhere, that we are still in the image of God. But, yet again, our actions may be contrary to God's likeness. We have been corrupted in some form. Are you getting excited now? This is also negative, isn't it? We're only half a page down. Um, what is this, anyway? What is this thing that's in? Well, we can think about actions, of course. We talk about sins, plural. And the primary words in both Hebrew and in Greek give us the idea of missing the mark like an archer, sit there pulling, boom, missing the target. Now, you can, um, you would be wrong, but you might say, oh, you know, we all do that. We don't live up to our own standards. We, you know, we kind of fall short, but we're all giving it a good go. Um, all that might be true. Um, but the fundamental thing here is not just setting a goal for yourself, as it were, and not quite uh, reaching it, but actually, no, you've gone askew in some important way. But this idea of falling short, you might say, is actually something which you do see in the Bible. Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans 3.23, talking about all of human beings that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So regardless of what you think about the fall and how it works in history and things, the issue is here, for all of us, we are in a situation where 
Sin is already in the world, we come into it, and we also fall short of the glory of God. We all miss the mark, fall short. Now, when we talked about, uh, in the reading there, Genesis chapter 3, famous text, looking at how human beings have um, gone astray. I'm not going to say too much. It's very tempting, but I'm not going to say too much about it. But it's interesting how different Christian traditions have read that story. If you're in the West, shaped by Augustine in particular, perfection, for some reason, um, disobeying God's command, falling and um, into sin. If you're an Eastern Christian, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, it's not that Adam and Eve in, in that understanding are actually like perfect or near perfect and then pridefully fall. In that reading of uh, the story, you think about what you read there with uh, uh, Adam and Eve. Do you read two mature sounding or looking people, grown up adults, who know basically how to live, um, who say, hey, we don't like what God has to say and we're going to um, rebel. Hey, take up arms against God. We hate God. Well, it's nothing like that. Instead, what you see is actually more like two adolescents, two immature people who are yet to be matured, who are yet to grow up into what God intends for them. And the serpent, the crafty one comes along, plays with a few words. Oh, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. And instead, as the um, uh, video suggested, we're going to take what God would, might ultimately offer, an understanding of, of right and wrong, and take it on our own terms. And as God warned, in that day you will surely die. It brings about death. It's the difference between the gift and the grasp. The gift of God, of God what God intends for human beings, or the grasp I'm going to take from myself, based on my own foolish understanding, this good gift of God, and that is the end. Now, that might be unfamiliar to you. You think, oh, well, that's not how I've read it before. Well, that's actually the majority reading of the uh, Eastern uh, Church. So, good to know. I actually think it makes uh, a lot more sense, to be honest. So we think about this folly, this foolishness, this disobedience to God's command. It's all those ideas, big categories of scripture, the Torah, God's commands and God's wisdom. And here we have basically the breaking of command, not to touch and take the fruit, not to eat it, and which is in itself, to do that is in fact to um, take on yourself the uh, prerogative, the autonomy to say, I will actually determine what's good or evil. So in that story, we have Adam, Adam and Eve, then the consequence, there's a whole series of judgments, the relationships are out of kilter between men and women, the relationship is now out of kilter with, um, with the earth, and they are exiled, which does that sound for? What, does, what do you think when you read the story of Israel? People placed in a garden environment provided for by God, sinning against God's command, folly in terms of pursuing God's wisdom, and are exiled. What's well, the story of Israel in miniature? 
in effect. Here's God's command. Here's a, uh, the Torah and wisdom is a tree of life, as it said over and over in um, other parts of Scripture. And in rebelling against that, they are exiled. Actually, more serious in um, in the prophets talk. They talk, and uh, also in both um, I think the Viticus too, in the purity law, the defilement aspect. The land will vomit you out. This is a lovely image. Not obeying God's command, not following the path of wisdom, not being a servant of Yahweh. And all the things that become associated with that, injustice towards one another, exploitation of each other, will lead finally to being vomited out of the land. Genesis 3 is not kind of like a, well, there we are, that's the end. It's a story that keeps on going, isn't it? And in 4 to 11, there's another dimension of sin here. Probably the first one, actually, that sin itself is, um, is mentioned. And it's not just in terms of an action but something deep um, and powerful that seeks to master us. So in Genesis chapter 4, Cain, the first son of Adam and Eve, um, uh, Abel, the second son, Cain is warned by God about sin as a kind of menacing power waiting at the door to leap on him and devour him as it were and take control of him really I suppose waiting at the door going out into the world it's there waiting for you it wants to master you and he gives into that doesn't he gives into it his anger with his brother who was accepted by God in a in terms of sacrifice whilst he wasn't there's envy there's resentment and there is the first uh, murder in the story and then as you watch this multiply, sin becomes like a virus. It's this distorting power. That we see violence continues and grows and grows. So if Cain and uh, his sons talked about the idea of like vengeance in terms of um, if someone kills me, then they will, this person will also be killed. Finally, the boast of, um, was it Lamech, I think it was, if I'm killed, then like you know, seventy people are going to be you know going to be killed. Violence here in the Book of Genesis, in particular, is one of the primary manifestations of sin. Maybe the primary manifestation of sin, and the violence that people have t- toward one another is an undermining of God's purposes for human and creational flourishing, made in God's image. Be fruitful, multiply. Flourish and violence as an expression of sin is an undermining of that purpose from God. It is a distorting power. It affects us in profound ways, including the forms in which we deceive ourselves about our sin as well. Maybe we're not so bad. Or maybe we're worse than what we think. We cannot necessarily think clearly about the nature even of sin and ourselves. We may accuse or excuse each other. Or we may offer ourselves a kind of forgiveness, what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, where we let ourselves off the hook. Where we don't even understand what forgiveness means as well. Where we might think of forgiveness as, ah, that's not so bad, that's okay, I forgive you, meaning, well, 
maybe it wasn't, you know, it wasn't so bad after all. I don't actually need to offer forgiveness. I'm just kind of going to restrain myself and forget about it. What about forgiveness in terms of the big things, the things that actually are painful and it does hurt to offer uh, forgiveness to somebody else? We do deceive ourselves in terms of the nature of that dynamic, how does sin and forgiveness work together? But again, sin does not annul the good, but it does distort it. It means that we pursue good things in life, but often at the expense of others or at the expense of other things which are good. And it leads us off, as we'll see, into another path related, which comes first, chicken or egg, idolatry. Sin is like a virus that spreads, disrupts, spoils and ruins what God has made good. It's not restricted, as I said, to a thought or act. It is a power that can master us, giving us the illusion that we have freedom, power and good things, but always coming at the expense in some form to ourselves and to others. We become the victims of others and sometimes often the victimisers of others at whatever level. But there's a part of us that does not necessarily live the life of love as God embodies it toward each other. In Catholic moral philosophy, uh, theology rather, often talk about the idea of disordering, that the world has been disordered. And that part of what we do in terms of Christian life, in terms of uh, understanding God's purposes and commands and his callings, is that the world needs to be rightly ordered again. And we're going to be looking at that next week. What does it mean to rightly order things? But we are in an element of disorder. It doesn't have to be out of chaos. It's not out of chaos. But it is deeply disordered. If you think about uh, even, um, interestingly, political philosophy um, in the Western world, at least, often goes back to a kind of an origin story. Thomas Hobbes, if you ever did uh, political philosophy, often talked about the idea that the state of nature, how things originally are, if you sort of took everything back to the start, is a war of all against all. Everybody is out for a piece of something else. Nobody can be fully trusted. And from there, he comes to the idea of the idea of the social contract. But fundamentally, even there, at the bottom of everything, violence, conflict is fundamental in that understanding of things. It's making, if you like, a fallen notion of creation the, the fundamental thing. We believe, as Christians, creation is fundamentally good and awaiting perfection. Now, without a strong theology of creation undergirding this awareness of sin, it's possible for us to sometimes have a very narrow focus on particular acts and guilt and the need for punishment. Rather than thinking, as Romans does, Let's talk about sins and our accountability and our, the judgment which um, we're, we'll all face, that we'll all be called to account. But more than that, not just sins, but the idea of sin, you might say with a capital S, as a kind of power or torrent that rules over us from which we need to be rescued. If you think about Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about his, uh, Israel's experience under the law. What does it actually me to follow God's commandments, I want to, but there is something within me that actually sends me off my desires in a different direction and I fail, I fall short. Who will deliver me 
from this body of death, he asks. Christ Jesus, my Lord. So there is an answer, but there's a problem of the power of sin, which is what I'm emphasising now. If you just have a gospel of forgiveness of acts, you haven't actually uh, reckoned with God's original purposes and the nature of the redemption that we have in Christ. It's... Christian life is not just about, I've done bad things, I need to be forgiven. Through Christ I've been forgiven. Done. That is a truncation uh, of the gospel. There's no creation theology, there's no new creation or resurrection theology in that. Along with forgiveness is its goal. Forgiveness of sins is to lead to freedom from sin and into an abundant life in Christ and a life of Good works, or good work in our verse we've been repeating each week, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared for us to do. Forgiveness is an entryway into a new life. Forgiveness is also, in part, freedom from not just the judgment that comes upon us. It's not an escape from the consequences of everything that we do either but it is an entryway into God's new creation. If we don't actually see a distinction, why is this important? If we don't see a distinction between creation and and sin, the temptation is to flop either way or conflate the two. That is, we are just the way we are, it's human nature, and to, in a sense, give a kind of always affirmative sentimentalism. Almost anything that we think, almost anything that we do, basically, excuse ourselves, just part of who I am, and everyone else is supposed to accept it. There are limits to that, of of course, as they are with every uh, human community. But we can have a kind of sentimental, I don't need to deal with anything in my life, and the big thing, I'm free. Free to choose my own life. I don't need you or God or anyone else chipping in their opinion to let me know that I should actually be like this. I just need to be accepted as I am. Flaws and all. Sentimental. We need to, even as Christians in this kind of environment, which celebrates freedom and autonomy and liberty and therefore misunderstands the nature of liberty and freedom, we need to actually have regain a serious sense of actually the dilemma which human beings are in. And sometimes we feel uncomfortable talking about this. Maybe it's the word, but as I said, think about how you can describe and explain what this notion of sin is, the disruption, the deviance, the distortion of things, um, missing the mark, etc. the original meaning of these words. We need to, though, have a serious sense of what the, to the dilemma that we're in. In one respect, sometimes as Christians, we almost learn to be sinners. That is, we learn to understand, oh, man, now I see. Often when people become a a Christian, a believer in Christ, they may well have an experience of saying, look back at my life and, oh, goodness, yes, I I need rescue or I need forgiveness. Other people might come in in other ways, like, I need meaning in my life. 
this is it. I think this is it. And committing their life to Christ. And then only after going, oh, my goodness, now I see the, the depth of the problems actually that uh, within me as well. Not to be locked within that, because I say this is about a new life in Christ, but a recognition nonetheless that we are under a power and a dilemma in our lives that we call out to Christ and the help of the Holy Spirit to overcome. It's an actual problem. As Jesus says, in the coming of God's kingdom, these things that may block you or, st- or stop you from actually entering into God's purposes, if your eye causes you pain, pluck it out. If your hands cause you pain, chop it off. Not literally. Let's say that. In the, in the early church, actually, there were a few people that did that. Um, so yeah. If you're a good reader of literature, um, you would understand that's a metaphor in your Dorothy. So. Um, but it's serious. It needs to be cut out of our lives. And probably the deepest root of all of this, as I finish up now, yes, is the problem of idolatry. And this is where it really comes to light. said last time and here that there's an idea in which um, the way that we relate to the world is, can be a domination, exploitation, but the other thing that we can fall into is to venerate the created world in a way that is equal to how we should venerate God. You might say that creation has an integrity, needs to be respected and treated well, but not venerated in the way that we give attention or rather worship to it um, as we would give to God. And Romans chapter 1 tells us about that, um, that there is a disordering, that we cease to be thankful and that in doing so, our relationships and understandings become darkened, as it says. We no longer see things clearly. And instead, we start moving to other kind of behaviours where we hold up created things at a level um, above what they're supposed to be and they begin to displace the worship of God. The very first commandment to Israel, you shall have no other gods before. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Idolatry is the fundamental problem. Whether it's of a thing or in our own time, as much as anything, sometimes ourselves. And we become like what we worship. If you worship God, if you actually give your life to God, your life is life of service of God, you express what it means to be the image of God, not just as a status, but as a vocation, as a way of life. You show the likeness of God. Likewise, if you worship or venerate or give more attention than what you should to other things, you can become like the thing that you worship. I mentioned last week, you might think, but why? When I read the story of Israel, I read so many times about how they gave themselves over to idols. And you think, why would you do that? Because we just think about an idol post this period of time as, oh, well, an idol is just an image and it's a block of wood or it's a block of stone or something made to look like, uh, you know, uh, a man with a, uh, a duck's head or something um, or a big fish, whatever. Why would you worship that? Well, okay. They're not that stupid. 
but it's a problem. Because what they're trying to do is actually make a connection point with whatever powers there are in the universe, whether they're gods or other things, in order to make some kind of connection to it, to be able to gain some power to control the chaos, particularly in a world that is not nice and air-conditioned and, and uh, so forth like ours, where you are more subject still to the elements, despite having dominion over the creatures. How do I control this world? Can I trust Yahweh, the God of Israel, to actually look after us? Maybe I should look in on these other gods, some of these other powers in the world that are local that may be able to help me get my crops to work, that may help us to get military victory, because I'm not sure whether Yahweh will do that. It's an attempt, if you like, to have a means of control over the world, to push away the chaos. In the New Testament, one of the hardest um, phrases, I think, is the idea that we need to set aside or put aside greed, which is, Paul says, idolatry. Greed, which is idolatry. What does that actually mean? Again, it's related to this, isn't it? We try to get power and control over our lives, which we can actually get through amassing money to ourselves, so that for our loved ones and so forth, we can push away the chaos, the contingencies of life, and so forth. But we're not the masters. It begins to master us. We become like what we worship. And worship, it like I was like, um, a kind of religious and ecstatic expression. It's what are you giving your life to? As Paul says in Romans 6, are you a servant of God or a servant of sin? Serving, worship, veneration, etc. What does that look like? So in our own world, we may not be bowing down to iconic objects, but we do seek still other powers apart from God in order to maintain control. And it does affect us. We cannot serve, as Jesus says, God or mammon. That is the power of wealth. We might think of other aspects of too much we try to get control of the world. The way that we use technology, technology being a good thing, but actually we become slaves to it. We give our lives to it. No longer serves us, and the attention we give to it, we begin to serve it. That's the matrix, if you like, of idolatry and sin. And then lastly, you might think about this one. When we talk about freedom, we talk about autonomy, we talk about liberty. Now, political liberalism, the environment in which we live, largely in the Western world, considers that our lives are in a private space. And we get to determine how we live our life. That's my business, not your business. Uh, I have my own projects, have my own life plans, etc., and I will live them out. And, as good um, liberal individualists, some people, oh, well, you know, I'd be happy to have some religion in my life or spirituality, a bit of Christianity to sort of bolster what I'm, um, you know, my basic life. Maybe that God can fit in, maybe that God can reach down and bless the particular project of life that I'm in. 
as I determine my own way of life, maybe a few prayers along the way to say, please guide me to more success and prosperity and for my life and my family, etc. We need to confront also the element where that becomes idolatry. And it doesn't lead to true freedom. How many people with wealth and technologies and so forth actually have those three senses of shalom? Do they actually do what is right and have integrity? Are they doing well in a broader metric of life rather than just the cash? And do they feel right and connected with other people in the right way? Is there truly freedom to live in a, a way where we put aside God's vocation for our life, his commandments, his, the relationship that he calls us into? Are we seeking to actually find those good things on our own way? Or, as Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God first, and these things will be added to you. Have confidence that God will actually, in his relationship to you and the community of which you are a part, will actually show concern for you. It won't be a life free of suffering, by the way. There's no promise of that. But think about how this relates back to Genesis chapter 3. What are the good things um, that God offers us that we seek to grasp by our own means, our own way of deciding what is right and wrong, good and evil? We, in effect, relive this story in our own lives over and over again. You might say the sin origin story, but we each have our own contribution to that as well. Where does that leave us? It leaves us here. We're all going to die and there is no hope. No. That is our plight. That is the situation. But as we go over the next three or four weeks, as we look at what is offered to us in the coming of Jesus Christ, in God's work in Israel leading up to that, and in the sending of the Holy Spirit after that, what does it mean to live in a world where God has acted and intervened and calls us as well to reckon ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Jesus Christ? We've talked about our plight, but there is a solution. Sometimes we don't know the extent of our plight until we actually look at the solution. We might not think that sin is such a serious thing until we see the cost of what it means for Jesus Christ. The extent of the solution shows the seriousness of our plight. On top of that, though, when we think about God's plan of salvation for us, his purposes for creation, his ultimate purpose for creation, we're also called as part of his mission in the world to work against the effects of sin in ourselves, together in forgiveness and confession and embracing a new life and in the wisdom that we can offer to turn the society in which we live, offer that wisdom for it to turn aside from some of its worst mistakes after we've dealt with some of our worst mistakes ourselves, yes? So the Christian worldview begins with seriously taking our status as creatures, beloved of God, made in the image of God, created for community with one another. It extends, as we have this week, understand we face realities of who we have become, but without succumbing to despair, because God 
reaches out to us. God acts on our behalf and he's decisively done so in the good news of Jesus Christ and his life, his death and resurrection. There's the making of shalom. There was the breaking of shalom in our lives and together. But the good news is there will be the remaking of shalom, of that peaceableness of justice in the world and in the world to come. Are you okay? Are you all right? Sinners, let's stop and let's pray. Let's give thanks to God for his generous and wonderful salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us, for your creatures, for your creation. We thank you for the amazing privilege of what it is to both represent you and interact with you as your image in this world. As we read the scriptures and we read the stories, we see that um, we found ourselves in quite the plight. There's a virus, there's distortions, there are issues that blight your good creation. We thank you that you have not abandoned us to that. That judgment is not your final word in terms of condemnation, but instead you have reached out to us. The plan through a people called Israel, with a king, a messiah, that came at the tail end of that story to provide redemption and a new way of life, the life of the age to come, even in the present time. We thank you for the sending of your spirit, your presence amongst us to make us into a temple, as it were, a community that gathers to worship you, to dedicate our lives to you, and then to go be scattered into the world to serve you out there. In our gratitude and thanks for your salvation, we ask you to... Renew us again in recognition of our former plight and our daily struggle with uh, the aftermath of who we had become. Help us to live into the new life, to put off the old sinful humanity and to put on the new humanity shaped by Christ Jesus. We ask for these things in Jesus' name as we look forward to the great and glorious day to come. Amen.